so gravity is a it's again it's a flip you know we we often believe that influence is about volume it's about being loud um, or it's about charisma the person who's the extrovert um, or it's about a position of authority to the person who's been doing it the longest or who has um, who is higher up in a hierarchy and actually influence is none of those things influence is the gravity with which you hold yourself helping ceos and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them be inspired by world leaders game-changing influencers and next level gurus this is the active ceo podcast where the ordinary don't belong and now your host ceo and founder of energy to perform international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO podcast, I speak with a beautiful human being who has dedicated a career to decoding influence, has a 20 year history as a leading authority in the speaking world, launching the world's most respected leaders and as the host of the very popular Inside Influence podcast. She has a BA honors in public relations from Bournemouth University and is a board member of Professional Speakers Australia. Her career includes marketing and PR roles with Sony and Harrods before transitioning into the world of speaking where she was Chief of Operations at Ovations International. In 2006, she co-founded Ode Management, the largest speaking management company in the world before founding Influence Nation in 2016. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to an impressive leader, mother, a wonderful mother of two young children, and an exceptional speaker who has a passion for helping people to inspire a world to take action. Julie Masters. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to get you to introduce me everywhere I go. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, it's nice to connect with you today. And, you know, I've always really enjoyed just the way you, your curiosity and the way you ask questions. So it's fun to be on the other side today and listen to you uh, from someone who's providing questions. Tell me. It's, it's strange. It's sorry. It's, it's a strange, um, strange for me to be on the other end of the microphone here. I'm usually the one, usually the one that's asking the questions and it's up to somebody else to, to jump in with their genius. So now that I'm on, I'm under pressure here. I'm under the pump. <laughs> I'm sure you'll perform, uh, with extinct, uh, within, uh, you know, really, really well today. Going back, where did you grow up and you know, what were your big dreams when you were a child? Uh, I grew up. Um, I grew up in England, in Norfolk, a place called Norfolk that no one's ever heard of. Um, it's about two hours above London, and just in a very tiny little coastal town there. And for a long time, it, it's funny actually. For a long time, I wanted to be a speech therapist. I was always really fascinated by words and by language, and the fact that you know some people seem to be able to articulate so well what they were trying to convey and, and, and others really struggled with getting their point across or being heard or having their voice heard. And so I wanted to be a speech therapist and I, I went and I did work experience at a local hospital and I was all kind of gunning and, and set in that direction. And 
And and then as happens, I became a teenager and um, discovered pop music and, a variety, and boys and a variety of other things. And then I completely changed course. And then I decided that I wanted to be um, a, a talent manager in the music industry. I wanted to work in PR in the music industry. So I headed off to university to, to study that topic. And then I worked for Sony for a while in London, um, trialing out that career until the travel bug kind of got me. And I ended up putting on a backpack and, and heading off into the world. Beautiful. So, so often the most powerful person in the room and the person who has the most influence is the quietest. So were you a natural quiet influencer or more of an expressive influencer while you were growing up? I, I think that the, that, that the answer to that requires context. I think that if you asked my family whether I was introverted or extroverted or whether I was loud or quiet, they would rep reply, oh, so extroverted so loud so extroverted because you know i come from a family who are quite introverted whereas you know when i got when i you know doing what i do now and, and working with thought leaders and influencers and authorities you know often i find that i'm possibly the most introverted person in the room so i think it definitely depends on the context of where you are and the situation which you find yourself in and i think also as i get older I think the wisdom of staying quiet, the wisdom of listening, of observing, of tuning into the state of the room that you're in, that grows. And so I'm, as I get older, I'm probably less likely to jump in and talk and way more likely to observe and listen and see if I can get a lay of the land before jumping in. Listening is the sound of intelligence, as they say. So it's a great observation. Who was the greatest influence as you transitioned from living at home to a world of choice and freedom? And you, and you talked about their starting to travel around the world. Who was my greatest influence? Yes. Oh, goodness. You know, maybe I'm just old, but I don't think we had as many ready, as much ready access to influences as people do today. You know, I don't, there was no social media. There was no real, there was a bit of internet. You know, I, when I went to university, I was actually talking about this with someone the other day. When I went to university, the, the computer room for the whole campus, there was one computer room and it had six computers in it. And you had to queue up and book in to, to write up your assignments and, and print them out. And heaven forbid you didn't get your name down and you couldn't do it and therefore you didn't hit your deadline. So. I don't know that there was that access to influences. I think the influences then were TV shows. They were watching travel TV shows. They were um, family members, family members of friends. I remember a boyfriend that I that I had for a few years when I was at uni. His sister had traveled to Australia. And, you know, I often heard tales of, of her adventures and what she was doing and and how much she was loving it. So I think your, your influence is formed in different ways. And I also think that one of the beauties of not being surrounded by all of that noise is that your inner voice is probably a little bit more loud. You can hear mm. it a bit better. And there was just always this sense. I remember my dad sitting me down actually and going, can you just explain to me what we did? Like, what did we do wrong? Because you just always wanted to go. <laughs> and, <laughs> 
And I have to like, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't do anything. There was, no one did anything. I just, there was always this pull, always this sense. I always wanted to live a global life. I always want, even now you ask my team, you ask anyone who works with me, you know, for the past 20 years, you know, the, the one line that I continually bang on about is being world-class. I always wanted to know what world-class looked like. I always wanted to feel like I was part of the world. And therefore, you know, a small town in, in Norfolk was probably never gonna, never gonna hold me. And I look back now and it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful upbringing, but there was always a sense of something else. Mm. In the early 2000s, you landed in Australia and you ended up working with Leanne Christie at Ovations International. How did that come about, that shift from working in PR in the music industry to now focusing in, in the speaking world? <laughs> no design whatsoever. I, I landed, I, I, I had some friends that were here for a little while and then they all went home and I found myself in an apartment in Glebe in Sydney with no furniture because they sold it all because it belonged to them. <laughs> Um, no furniture and one poster on the wall and everybody I knew had gone home and I remember sitting on that floor just thinking what have you done I'd made this big proclamation that I was going to stay and I was going to you know start something in this new country and I, I had a ticket on to LA at the time I was planning on going on to LA and I'd cancelled the ticket and Sydney was going to be where I was going to be and and just thinking what on earth like you could die in this apartment and nobody would ever find you <laughs> there's no one that's going to notice if you're missing here and i i did many jobs when i first started i did some marketing jobs i did some pr jobs um did, i think i did some waitressing jobs but i knew i needed a visa that was my again you know i'm pretty focused and I, that was what i was gunning for i was gunning for a visa to be able to stay and by complete accident, I was working at um, a TV company and a girl I had met on an elevator, I'm sorry, on an escalator a couple of weeks before, we just got chatting and she called me and she said, what's your fax number? Which again, gives you an idea of, of how long <laughs> I was. What's your fax number? And I said, well, there's a fax machine sat on my desk. I've got no idea, let me find out. I gave her the number and she faxed over this job ad um, for a speakers bureau based in Balmain, which was outside of the city. And she said, this sounds like what you do. And I, I remember looking at it thinking, sounds nothing like what I do, but <laughs> I need a visa. So sure, let's do this. And the night before my interview for this job, I had got an odd, I had got a job, so I needed some money. I had got a job being the prize girl on the stage at a sports awards ceremony because I was only 21, 22. And so it was for, for the Wallabies. And so they would get on stage, receive an award. I would be, you know, the girl who handed them the award. And after that, I had got, you know, quite drunk <laughs> with all these sports players. And so I'd had an amazing time and called my dad and said, I'm meeting the Wallabies. And then the next day I had the job interview and I remember sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing here? I'm, and Leanne at the time, you know, she was asking me, you know, name some sports players. And luckily I had just been with some the night before. And so I was like, well, there's this person and this person, and I'm reeling them off. Like I have any idea what I'm talking about. Uh, because that's what a speakers bureau did. It's a speakers bureau is a broker. If you're looking for a speaker at your event, 
you could turn to a speakers period to recommend different names. Mm. And so and so we're talking and, and it's becoming, you know, more and more obvious that I don't know what I'm talking about in this interview. And she went away and then she gave me a call and do not ask me why it's one of those sliding doors moments of your life. But she called me and she said, do you know what? I've spoken to my accountant and I've spoken to my husband and I've spoken to my lawyer and none of them think I should give you a job, <laughs> but I like you and I think you'll work hard. So the job is yours. Oh, and the other thing was you need to earn more money than anyone else is asking because I had, I had to hit a certain wage level in order to get my visa. Yep. So yeah, she basically took someone grossly underqualified who was going to be grossly overpaid and, and gave her a shot. And that's, that's how that started. And I did that for four or five years. And the business grew, um, we did great things. I learned a lot from obviously being around Leanne and, and all the incredible thought leaders that I had access to. And, and then it was time to, to look at another chapter and that's where, that's where Ode came into play. Mm. So before we, actually, I think that's a really good transition. So Leanne was mentoring you and then you began mentoring people like Decoding Purpose podcast host, Rebecca Tapp. For you, what is the greatest way to transfer influence? Transferring influence. I think transferring influence starts with trust. It's a, and trust is a two-way street. You have to trust somebody else with the knowledge that you have. You have to trust somebody else in terms of an investment of your time. You have to trust that they're going to listen and learn and apply. And there's no guarantees there. Um, and they also need to trust you. They need to trust that you're going to have their back when they get it wrong, mm. which everybody gets it wrong. You know, they have to trust that you're giving them your absolute and you're not holding anything back. And they have to trust that you're going to be there in the long term and hold their hand through the whole journey and have their back through the whole journey. So I think it's a multi, it's a two way trust street. I also think, and I talk about this a lot, that if you want to be in a position of influence, if you want to own the influence that you have, either as a leader or as a thought leader, um, you need to learn the art of translation. You need to become the primary translator for the people that you're looking to influence. And the role of a, of a translator is that you take something complex that's taken years to learn that you have developed mastery in that is potentially you know the whole encyclopedia of, of everything and you can break it down for somebody else using their language in easy to digest bites that's what a translator does and so if you're looking to pass on your knowledge to somebody you need to translate what you know for them and all too often what we do is rather than translating what we know, we dump what we know using you know, our language, which often the other person is not fluent in, um, using jargon, um, not doing it in small bites, but just one very large data dump. And so I think that's another key to it. You need to trust and be trusted and you need to take on the role of translator for that individual or for that group of individuals or for that community if you're doing it at scale. Mm. Yeah, really powerful because it's in this world, it's so easy to make things complex, but real challenge to make things simple. And 
that is the art of influencing is making is taking the barriers away when you are interacting with someone so that it can be really simple so they can grasp it easy uh so yeah really really powerful it's funny i i wrote that on um i read a note on my phone just recently and it just said you know simple is mastery mm. you know all too often we think that complexity is mastery yeah the more i can make things sound complex sound hard sound difficult even though they are the more it will be obvious that i have mastery and in fact the opposite is true the yeah. more i can make something simple easy to understand elegant that takes mastery. You don't arrive at simplicity. You have to wade through complexity. You have to earn simplicity. Certainly do. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, like I use the term simplification is sophistication. And, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is a lot of the times it's just making sure that people think about one problem, one idea, one solution, um, yeah, one piece of evidence, just just keeping it really simple and easy for people to, as you say, those bite-sized chunks to digest. Um, so. mm. And I usually break that down into three, the three and the one. So as a result of this, inter uh, um, whatever it happens to be, what are the three things that you want someone to know? What are the three things you need them to understand? And then if they don't do, if they do nothing else, what's the one thing you want them to do about it? Now, if you can get it down to that level of simplicity, then you're likely to make an impact. But if you can't structure it in a simple, coherent, you know, as I said, bite-sized pieces using their language, then it's gonna be really difficult for you to make an impact because to make an impact, firstly, you have to be understood. Then they need to be able to repeat it tell somebody else that's that's the whole the essence of amplification right of of spreading messages at scale so they need to be able to share it and it not lose its power and then thirdly they need to be a hundred percent clear on what they need to do and how they need to do it and it needs to be easy enough for them to do it given everything else they have going on in their lives yeah that's great so so how do we know so when our influence is successful is it when they've taken action, is it when they acknowledge? How can we see whether we've had real impact? I think action is is the number one rule there. We know we have had influence when there is a tangible outcome. Something has changed. Otherwise, if, if we don't want anything to change, then we're, we're not needed there to influence anything. The whole definition of influence is to get something to change, to, to change form, to change shape, to change direction. So action is the, the predominant word there, but I think that you almost need to go further with it. You know, there are two different types of action. There's passive action and there's proactive action. And passive action, all too often, I think we, we measure the results of our influence, the results of our, of our activity using passive action. So did they, on social media, did they like it? How many likes did I get? You know, that's passive action. Passive action is something that I can do easily. It requires no investment for me to do so. And I will forget two seconds later that I did it and I have zero commitment involved in it. So I think we need to forget about passive action as a metric. I don't think that it's useful as a way of actually measuring our results. I think that proactive action is a much better measurement. So let's go back to social media again. You know, proactive action within a social media context is 
engagement? Did I comment? Did I go out of my way to comment? You know, that's the least, that's the, that's the, the least thing that I would measure. And then did they share it? Now that's proactive action. If I'm prepared to back this enough to send it to all of my network, to say to all of my network, I'm behind this, I endorse this. We call it halo effect. You know, I have the people who follow me and like me, I have what's called a halo. And if I endorse or say, hey, look at this, I extend my halo onto it mm. or onto that person. So if we're gonna extend our halos onto this idea or this person or this movement, that's proactive action. You know, you need to have done a good job in order for somebody to take that kind of action. And so I think that yes, the answer is action, um, but better than that, it's proactive action. So, you know, in a corporate standpoint, that's the difference between sitting in a meeting and agreeing, that's passive action. Um, you know, typing back, that sounds like a good idea. You know, that's, that's passive action. Proactive action would be, you know, how can I help? I'm, I'm in, how can I help? How can I support? Who do you need me to get on board with this? Who do you need me to, to tell about this? You know, that that's proactive action. And that's what you're after. That's the whole purpose of, of trying to influence somebody or something. Uh, I love the proactive uh, approach because the world is so reactive and it certainly has been in 2020. I, I would like to go back a step here. We're talking about building that trust from both sides. So how do we know we have permission, whether it's conscious or subconscious, to allow ourselves to actually influence someone? You know, especially if we look at um, social media or we look at people purchasing something, you know, most people don't purchase on the first go or don't connect and, and take action on the first um, interaction with you. So how do, we, how do we know we've got that permission? The, the core way to get permission, I believe, is to contribute. So we've come from, we've come from a world, you know, for as long as marketing has been alive, in one way, shape or form, it has usually taken the form of a three-part strategy. So that is, I will out interrupt. I will interrupt you as many times as I need to, to get you to do what I want you to do. I will outspend. So I'll spend as much as I need to in order to get you to do what I want you to do. Or um, I will shout, volume strategy. I will shout as loudly as I need to. Now take that out of marketing. The same can be said for leadership. You know, the, the tradition of the old school form of leadership is I will just interrupt you, raise my voice and spend as much money as I need to, to drown you out that, or to get you to do what I want you to do. So that's the old school way of influencing. And that form of influencing has been around for, for decades. You know, if you look at it in certain forms, maybe even centuries. And, you know, I went, I went to university, as you mentioned, to study PR and marketing, which were <laughs> four years of doing very little study i have to say and but if you if you took all those textbooks and all those lectures and all those notes and if you boiled it down you could boil it down to just those three things out shout out spend and out interrupt everybody else and i think that what we are seeing now in in a new age of influence is we're seeing a whole new strategy emerge a way more impactful effective scalable strategy and that is the strategy of out contributing everybody else. 
So, you know, if you're asking, do we need permission? Yes, we absolutely need permission. And the way that we get that is by contributing to somebody's life. If I'm interested in you, in working for you and doing business with you, I'm going to check you out. And according to Harvard University, I think the recent stats were that over 50% of all decisions about whether to work for or with or buy into or from an individual or an organization are now made prior to them even knowing that that person exists. So basically Google stalking. Over 50% of decisions are made by Google stalking. So firstly, is what I find, does what I find contribute to me? Have you contributed to my life? Have you stepped outside of what you want to say and what you want me to do and thought about what I want? thought about the issues that are important to me, thought about the questions that I am asking about the challenges, opportunities, trends, or processes that I'm faced in your field, that I'm faced with in your field. If somebody has, and they are actively contributing to the conversation, they're actually actively contributing to my life. And I would put money on the fact that if you looked at it, Everybody that you engage with today, either on social media, you read their posts, every newsletter you opened or you remain subscribed to, um, every individual that in your organization that you would say, you know, I consider them to be, you know, a go-to expert in their field. I consider them to be an authority. You feel that way about them because they have made a significant contribution to your life, career, or journey. And I think that's the permission. We need to stop trying to shout more loudly than everybody else, interrupt people until they do what we want. And we need to take a step back and think about what contribution can I make here that's useful for those people, helpful to them. And if I can do that almost without agenda, then the trust will come. Then they will allow themselves to be influenced by me because they trust my intentions and they believe that I have mapped out the road. You know, I, if I look at who I follow, if I look at the people who I have respect for, it's because they've mapped out a journey for me. They've said, you know, if you want to get from A to, to B, C, and D, I know the path. I've walked that path before. I've held the hand of other people who have walked that path before. Let me map it out for you. Let me break it down for you. Here are some of the answers to the questions that you have, but better still, here are some of the answers to questions that you don't know that you have, but that you should be asking. Those are the people, those are the influencers, those are the authorities, those are the recognized experts, the ones that get the most opportunities, the ones that get paid the most, um, the ones whose businesses are the most successful. It's the ones that out-contribute everybody else in their space. So that's a very long answer to, I know, uh, what was a short question, but that's the key to permission for me. The key to permission is contribution. And it's great because you've answered a question that I had around influence being long-term or short-term. And, you know, it's quite easy, well not, it's relatively easy for people to create a short-term influence, but it's that whole contribution aspect that allows influence to embed for a long-term approach is yeah and it's funny i was just mapping out a model on this as a, a course that i teach called rapid authority and you know the idea of rapid authority not being that there's a magic button and you can press it and suddenly you're a well-known influencer the idea of rapid authority being that we leave we live in a rapid age an age where the tools exist now to go from 
you know, beginnings to well-known expert in sh very short periods of time, shorter than has ever been possible before. Because we have all these incredible tool, digital tools at our fingertips. And the other reason for the word rapid is that those that succeed are those that move quickly, mm. who aren't afraid to fail, who try new things, who jump in, who know that it's always version eight and you've just got to get through versions one to seven. And so, yeah, as part of this course, I was looking at how to explain or how to break down what you were just talking about there. And where I got to with it is, you know, there's probably, there's three levels of, of influence. The, the first level is what I would call fascinate. And that's where I'm looking for somebody who does what you do. I'm, you know, I'm looking for, you know, I know kind of what I want and I'm doing my research and I come across you or I come across your company. Now, how, what is it about how you ex explain what you do, how you pitch who you are and what you do or, or who your company is and what they do? What about, do I find a video, a three minute video that, that really expresses what it is and how you do it and how, and how you are unique? You know, that, that eternal question that we all dread, why you? Why you and not the other guy? What makes you unique? Do I find answers to that question? Do I find a, a document that you've prepared, which is the 10 steps to just take financial planning, the 10 steps to setting yourself up for retirement that I can easily access? All of this before you even know I exist. Have you fascinated me? So that's number one. If you do, then I will turn into a follower and I'll start checking out, okay, is there something regular that I can check out here? You know, I really loved where they were coming from. I really love their stuff. I really believe that they can translate, you know, navigate this journey for me, become the primary translator that I'm looking for so that I don't have to wade all the way through the information and figure this out myself. So how do I, you know, what else is there? How do I follow them? How do I get more? And that's where, you know, things like a podcast or things like a TV series or a regular newsletter or a quarterly trends update. That's where that comes, comes in. And that's where I become a follower where, you know, I, I think as your audience do, this is interesting and useful enough. This contributes enough for me to give it my time on a regular basis. So that's the next stage. The third stage is when I become a fan and you know, you have fans when they're, they're waiting for the um, the big chunky pieces to come along. You know, they'll wait all year for your latest book. They'll put their name down on a wait list for a course that you're running or a new product that you're launching. Um, they will, you know, they're proactively hunting you out, trying to go, you know, trying to say, I I'm willing to give you my money. How do, I, how do I do that? Either my money or my time, if it's a movement that we're looking at here, if you're starting a movement. Again, I've got to get fascinated in, okay, this is a movement that I'm looking to give my time to. All right, how do I follow this movement from the outskirts to see what it looks like? Do I feel like I'm a part of it? And then the third one is, okay, I'm a fan, I'm in. I'm gonna take action now. How can I take action? So you need to nail each one of the three parts of that influence journey. And, you know, that's, that's how we do it in the long term. That's how we take an initial spark of interest and we turn it into action. Oh, I like it. So fascinate me, uh, become a follower and be a fan. Mm. Three yep. parts of the influence journey. You often speak about gravity. How do we use gravity to pull your audience in? 
Oh, I love, I love gravity. I could talk about gravity all day. Um, so gravity is a, it's, again, it's a flip. You know, we, we often believe that influence is about volume. It's about being loud. Um, or it's about charisma, the person who's the extrovert. Um, or it's about a position of authority. So the person who's been doing it the longest or who has, um, who is higher up in a hierarchy. And actually influence is none of those things. Influence is the gravity with which you hold yourself. And gravity looks very different. And I, I often I use the example of a flamenco dancer for anyone that's ever seen flamenco. I love, I'm a big fan of flamenco. And when you see a flamenco dancer come onto the stage, you will notice that they stop moving. They stand very still and they stand very still for quite a while. And they do a thing which I would call grounding down. They ground down, their feet become very solid in the ground. Their energy moves from up high, very frenetic energy to down, very low. You can feel their center of gravity shift to much lower down in their body. And something happens and the Spanish call it duende. And there's, there's no literal translation in English. And I once tried for the podcast, I once tried to interview a flamenco, uh, quite a well-known flamenco guitarist to talk about this. And I, it was a three-way, it was honestly, as a podcast host, you, you might feel my pain. It was a three-way translation. So the only translator I could find spoke French. And so he spoke Spanish and French. So he, <laughs> he spoke his second language to a translator who then spoke to me in English and it, it went nowhere. <laughs> but that's a side story. So all to speak to my fascination with flamenco. So there's this, they call it duende and duende is this moment where they say the duende has arrived and the duende for them, it's a mythical creature and you can feel it. It's like, it's like the gravity has shifted in the room. All eyes are on that person. You cannot look away. And when that moment happens, the Spanish would say, the duende's just arrived. And the myth around the duende is that in order for it to arrive, in order for it to come into your body, something has to die. And it's usually a story. It's usually a story that you have about yourself. It's usually one of those stories, and we all have them, one of those stories that keeps you small. And I bet right now for anyone that's listening, take a second, and you would immediately know what that story was. It'll come to you, whether you like it or recognize it or want to admit it or not. We all have a story that keeps us very small and keeps us very quiet and makes us hide behind brands and job titles and technical language and lecterns and PowerPoint slides. That story is the story that needs to die if the duende is going to arrive, if you are ever going to hold gravity in a room or in a presentation or in a conversation in such a way that time stops and people can feel the urgency of needing to listen to you. So yes, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of, of gravity. And I think that while we're on this topic, it's probably important to draw the line between gravity and confidence. And I talk a lot about, about confidence being a myth. 
And it's the biggest myth. Oh my goodness. We've all been duped by the word confidence for, for so long. And, you know, we all believe that it's real, that it exists and it, it doesn't. And I've been around the world of thought leaders and authorities and authors and CEOs and politicians for 20 years across the world, um, across stages, tens of thousands, probably millions of people. And I have never once seen confidence. I think confidence is that thing that you say to prevent yourself from doing the thing that you know that you need to do. I will do X, fill in the blank, stand up, put my hand up, say no, make a video, request a promotion, um, start this movement that's so important to me when I feel more confident. And the irony of that myth is that confidence only shows up when we show up. Influence only shows up when we show up. It's the result, not the ingredient. You don't do things because you feel confident. You feel confident because you have done it. Mm-hmm. And as children, we know this. You know, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And my daughter, she's four, and I see her doing things. She was, um, she was trying to build a cubby house the other day. And I said to her, you know, how are you doing? And she was like, yeah, it's good. It's, you know, it keeps falling down. And I said, oh, gee, are you feeling a little bit more confident doing this by yourself now? And she was like, no. You know, she doesn't expect to feel confident at something that she's barely done before. She doesn't have that expectation. That's not the prerequisite to doing it. She assumes that she's going to get more confident. She's a, she assumes that she's going to become confident. And for some reason, something happens. I wish I knew what it was. Something happens as we grow up where we start to believe that confidence comes first. That, you know, that the skies are going to part, the angels are going to sing, and a, a light's suddenly going to shine on us from up above. And, you know, da, 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 it's your time. <laughs> Go forth. We have chosen you. <laughs> and it doesn't happen. It, it genuinely does not happen. It will never happen. Confidence shows up when we show up. Influence shows up when we show up. And by the time it arrives, you know, believe me, you don't need it anymore. And so what I talk about is the need for certainty. We need certainty, not confidence. And certainty is something that you can access right now, today, in this moment. And certainty is that moment where you say, in this moment, I give you the best that I have. I give you everything that all my experiences, all my journeys, all my wins, all my failures, I bring you everything that that I have learned from that, everything that I believe to be true. And I give it to you generously and I give it to you to the best of my abilities and it is not perfect, but I, I want to contribute it to you. I give it to you. That is certainty. Now, What comes with certainty is also the admission that if I find out something new tomorrow, I'm an open and curious and ever learning individual. And if I find out something new tomorrow, I will change my mind. I'll change direction. I'll update my belief system. I'll I'll update the knowledge and information I'm contributing to the world. But I will not allow the possibility that I might not be right, or the possibility that somebody might know more than me, or the possibility that somebody might disagree with me, I will not allow that to stop me from showing up. 
that's certainty and that has a gravity to it all unto itself wow Influence. I told you I could talk about gravity all day. No, and it's good. And and so my question there then is, how then does gravity connect with, say, the gravitas or the aura of someone coming in? You know, there are certain times when you can be in a room and someone will walk in and everyone just turns around and is connected to that person. You know, we, we see it with some of the world's greatest leaders, you know, like a Nelson Mandela would walk into a room and the energy in the room would shift and people would notice. So how does that, yeah, the, um, the gravitas and the aura fit with gravity? Well, it's the same thing. You know, you don't look at Nelson Mandela and go, oh, he's so confident. Nobody thinks that. Mm. That's not the feeling, that's not the sensation. It's not the experience that we have of him in the world. We don't look at Oprah Winfrey or Barack Obama and go, they're so confident. That's not how we feel about them. No. How we feel about them is they hold themselves with gravity. They hold themselves with certainty. They walk into a room and they are certain of their right to be there. Now that doesn't mean that they're serious or that they're boring or that they're um, you know, authoritarian. It just means they can have lots of lightness. You know, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, great examples of people who have incredible lightness. But when they walk into that room, they come with a sense of gravity. They come with a certainty that they have a right to be there, that they have something worth offering, something worth hearing, and that if they don't know the answers, they will pull out every stop on the planet to find out because what they are about is creating something better. And that takes continuous listening and learning. Mm -hmm. Oh, very clever. I like that. We're in, a, we're in a space and time right now where we have elections happening in America, we have elections happening in New Zealand, we have elections happening um, in, throughout Australia um, and other parts of the world. When we have you know, elections taking place, what do politicians, the, the successful politicians focus on to have effective influence over them getting into the roles that they desire? repeat that question for me so we have elections happening at the moment around the world and we have politicians who obviously want to influence people to vote to get them into a position of power or position inside a government what what do they focus on to achieve influence on people um, is it is it an emotional influence um, you know, how, how do they build trust in that, that time where quite often it seems like they are competing against each other rather than actually trying to effectively influence people? But in the end, the voters will make a decision. So what do they focus on to influence? Oh, I think that's a really good question. And I think we're seeing a real division at the moment between those who are doing it in a very old school traditional way um, an author authoritarian way. I have all the information, you do not. Um, you know, I'm louder. I mean, we see them literally shouting each other down. Um, I will continue to interrupt you. I don't think I need to, you know, mention an individual in the States who's amazing <laughs> at interruption. Um, or I'm just going to get more money than anybody else, than all of you. So I think you're looking at an area of our lives right now, which is, is taking or needs to take and is in the process of taking a fundamental shift. 
from a traditional model of influence to to a new age of influence. I, if you look at the ones that do it well and you look at the ones that get cut through, it goes back to the same principles again. Do they know exactly who they're talking to? Are they fluent in their language? Do they understand their questions? Are they translating what they know, the world that they have mastery in, i.e. politics, um, policy? Are they translating it for that well for that target market, i.e. using their language in easy to digest bites? Then on to the next, which we haven't talked about, which is the, the power of epic storytelling. Do they have ability to tell epic stories? And an epic story, I, I, I need to make this distinction, an epic story is not manipulative. You know, often I think, you know, we, we look at storytelling and we, and we think that because storytelling is the primary tool for making people feel something, that, you know, it must be a form of manipulation. And there is a way of telling stories that is very manipulative. You know, I think societally, we need to start recognizing when the three tools of manipulation are used against us. And the three tools of manipulation are fear, drama, and outrage. Any story that anyone tells you at any time, over the water cooler, on the front page of a newspaper, in a YouTube clip that involves the tools of drama, fear, and outrage is designed purely to manipulate, manipulate you. It is the cheapest form of attention grabbing. So I think we need to learn to recognize when that is used and then immediately pull back. I put something on social about this recently. You know, as soon as you start to see those tools used, pull back just slightly. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. You don't have to throw the newspaper down and set it on fire or, you know, shout at somebody and walk away. Just pull back, just energetically, just pull back a minute and start asking yourself some questions or ask that person some questions. Why do they feel this strongly about this? What motivation could they possibly have? Why do they want me to feel afraid? What's in it for them for me to feel afraid right now? Am I at my most useful, at my highest capacity when I'm afraid? Do I make my best decisions from a place of fear? Am I most resilient and resourceful in that place? No, I am not. So, I need to step back from those tools and start looking at things more objectively. I need to get some, I need, if I'm interested in the topic, I need to get some more information. So the tools of epic storytelling outside of manipulative storytelling, uh, it needs to be emotive. And when I say emotive, you know, I come back again to language and that's charismatic language. Every target market, every group of individuals, every community has what I would call charismatic language. And that's the language that they naturally use. Um, I'll give you an example that I gave somebody today. You know, I, I've done a bit of work recently and on an ongoing basis with the real estate industry. And, you know, if you want to get real estate agents to pay attention to something, you use their charismatic language. And so words like dominate, you know, you know, dominate the marketplace. You know, that's something that gets real estate agents to pay attention. Now, if I was trying to communicate with nurses and have my words have impact, they have their own charismatic language. And if I said the word dominate to them, you know, how to dominate at your next appointment, they're going to be like, no, no, like back right off. So emotive means are you using the charismatic language of your target market? Are you fluent in their language? So that's the first one. 
Secondly, is it personal? Um, and by personal, I mean, have you done this thing that you're talking about? Have you experienced? Do you have any experience in this thing that you're talking about? Have you either done it, experienced it, or held the hand of somebody else that has done it or experienced it? That's personal. That's when storytelling really comes alive. That's when you can't take your eyes off somebody because you can feel their connection to the story. And the third one, is it relevant? And this is one that I think we forget constantly when it comes to trying to tell stories and trying to influence. And that is, I call it the keep it or share it rule. And when it comes to marketing, when it comes to storytelling, the podcast, newsletters, in my office, we have one rule. And that rule is, if it is not valuable enough for someone to either keep it, to refer back to it later, or share it with somebody that they know, then it doesn't leave the building. Is this relevant to the people that you are talking to. And if it isn't relevant, so the story itself might not be relevant, but if there are lessons that can be learned from that story that are relevant to that target market, do you know what they are and are you communicating them? So those are the, you're going back to politics. So people who are clear who they're, who they're talking to, they're fluent in their language, they understand their questions. They are out contributing, they're translating their world for this group of people. This is what this means. This is what this means for you. This is how you do this. This is what this will look like. Here are some of the possibilities. Here's what that would take. And then doing that using the tools of epic storytelling. A final one, which I don't think is in the world of politics really at all at the moment, and that is collaboration, power of collaboration. How well do you collaborate? If you want re like atomic reach, if you want to reach the most possible people with the most possible impact in the shortest period of time, then you're going to need to learn how to collaborate with other people that have the eyes and ears of the people you're trying to reach. And I think the only person who's I've seen do it well um, was Barack Obama back when he was first um, running for president. And he, he did some amazing collaborations. I think he did collaborations with musicians. He did collaborations with, you know, heads of techs. Um, I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez right now in the States is doing a really good job from a collaborative standpoint. You know, how well do you play with others to the point that they would share you with everybody that they know? And for most politicians at the moment, I think the answer to that is not very well at all. So all of those elements to me um, would make an exceptionally strong political campaign. Lots of golden nuggets in, in that answer. You, you've worked with a lot of speakers and, and obviously influences over time. Who would you regard as the best speaker you've worked with and why? And what is the most valuable lesson you learned from them? <gasps> Oh goodness. No, you can't you can't ask me that. <laughs> um the best speaker and why. I gen I genuinely can't answer that. It's not that I have an answer and I'm not willing to share it. I can't answer that because one of the beautiful and amazing things about running a um, talent agency for speakers and thought leaders you know here and in the states was that I got to create my own um my own A-team. I got to build a team of people who represented messages that I passionately believed in, who were incredible human beings and who offset each other's strengths and weaknesses. 
and you know what's the what's the Marvel Comics? What's the team from Marvel Comics? You can tell how much I watch the movies. What are they called X Men? The X Men. If X Men wasn't incredibly sexist, then it would be the X Team. <laughs> um, you know, I learned so much from every single person that I worked with. Every single one. You know, from some I learned the art of certainty. You know, we, there was one particular speaker. Some of you may know him, Peter Sheehan, who's a who's a a long time kind of colleague and friend and somebody I respect very much. And, you know, we used to say about Pete in the office, we used to say, you know what, somebody would watch, people would watch him or listen to him talk about tying his shoelaces, not because they needed the content or the information, but because whatever he does, he does it with such a level of certainty that you're just enthralled. You know, I learned certainty from him. I learned the power of being a trans, a trans translator or a translator from um, the futurists that I worked with. I learned the power of out contributing from the leadership, the, the heads of leadership, you know, some incredible people. Peter Baines is one that you know of who, you know, he ran the, the police efforts to, to um, locate and identify the bodies after the Thailand tsunami. And he was there for months, just identifying bodies and giving them back to their families. You know, what does it take to lead a team that has to do that day in, day out? And what does it take to lead yourself through those moments when you're far away from your own family, continually giving the bodies of children back to their families? Uh, yeah, so much from so many people. And that was the gift of it. And and that was why I started my podcast because I um, I had been on maternity leave with my daughter and I was just desperately missing that level of conversation. I was desperately missing learning. I was desperately missing surrounding myself with people who just had the brightest minds and the most interesting ideas and experiences and who were willing and open to sharing them. And so that was the reason for the podcast. That was the whole reason for it being. It had nothing to do with anybody else. It was purely for me, which is the best reason to start anything. It was just for me filling my own cup with those kind of ideas and those kind of people. I loved your answer there. And the reason I love it is that we learn so much from so many different people and we're influenced in different ways by different people. And so I really respect the way you you took hold of it, that question and gave us a, a beautiful answer in the, in the way that you were connecting with different people. How do you ensure that you manage your energy and performance so that you can be present and deliver your best version every day with the influences you're working with? Oh, it's a good question, especially this year. Um, I think that for me, managing your state is one of the the most important tools that you can learn and remain committed to because, oh my goodness, it, like, if I have done two things more this year than I have done any other year, one is reset myself and the other one is apologize. Yeah. It's just been a year of resetting and apologizing, resetting and apologizing. Um, and I think that understanding your own state, understanding that we are all in a state, we, like, everybody is in state. There's the incredible mind of Alan Parker. If anyone's listening, check that, check him out, check his workout. You know, he's a, he's worked for the UN before as a facilitator managing. I mean, you imagine 
resolving conflict at such a level that you can do. I think when I spoke to him last, it was like 60 party, 60 different party negotiations, all speaking a different language, all with different agendas and levels of a, you know, emotional attachment. You know, you want to do that, you've got to be really good at managing your state, at paying close attention to the state that you are in. And again, he is somebody that I have learned that from how to manage, monitor, and readjust my state. Especially if you're a leader or if you're going to get up on stage and speak or get up in front of people because, you know, you don't get to choose the days that you do that, right? You don't get to go, I'm a leader today, but tomorrow I may not look like, I might not feel like it. <laughs> I think I might just be sad or bored or generally confused tomorrow. And you also don't get to do that if you're getting on the stage, you know, a, a friend of mine and somebody I interviewed for the second time just this week for the podcast, Mark Shulman, he's the, he's Pink's drummer. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, <coughs> sorry, let me just take a glass of water. You know, he has to get up and stadiums, he spent all of last year touring with Pink and stadium after stadium after stadium, hundreds of thousands of people. And he was saying to me this week, he was like, you know, I didn't, there's no understudy. Like there's no, there's nobody waiting in the wings if I get sick or I'm tired or I have a fever or, you know, I just, I don't feel like it. You know, I don't have the energy to bring it today. You know, we all have a choice. And the further along your journey you choose to go, the more responsibility you choose to take, the less you might feel like you have a choice as to whether or not you show up. But the how we show up, that is always a choice. And, you know, if you know, if you're not feeling like you are in a state to be able to show up the way that you want to show up, then it's up to you to identify the things that you need to do to get yourself in that state. What is it? Is it exercise in the morning? Is it a coffee? Is it three coffees? If you have young children who don't sleep, is it um, is it listening? One of the pieces of advice that I give people who are who have to get up and speak in front of people and who are nervous is I say, well, well, pick your song. What's your song? You know that song that just gets you fired up. Pick your song. Go and find a toilet cubicle somewhere and listen to that song. Put your headphones in. Listen to that song. You know, you look at the work of Amy Cuddy out of, um, I think it's out of Harvard. She did that incredible TED talk um, on power posing. And, you know, you don't fake it until you make it, you fake it until you become it. And how you do that is using your physiology as a tool. When you stand up, shoulders back, chin up two inches. In those moments, chemicals get released in your brain that reduce the fight or flight and that bring in the um, the feelings of authority, the feelings of power, the feelings of being in control. So you can adjust your physiology to change how you feel. There is mindfulness, mantras, um, calling a best friend. The answer is different for everybody. But knowing the things that get you in state is a key to being a leader, to being an authority or being an influencer, because then it is up to you to do those things when it counts. Because as I said, the more you take on, the further you choose to go down this road, and I can recommend going down this road, like taking full responsibility for the strength of your voice, for the impact of your voice, for your ability to conduct and drive change and contribute, be it within your organization, your team, 
your country, the planet, you are going to have to show up when you don't feel like it. So you will not get to choose whether you show up, but you always get to choose how you show up. Oh, very good. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, was the last time I did something for the first time? I, one of the challenges that I think a lot of people have had this year in, in my space, in our space, um, has been suddenly you can't be with people, right? You know, yeah. I'm usually in a room with a lot of people. I'm either speaking on a stage in front of you know, 100 to 1,000 people. I'm in a room with 15 people workshopping or I'm even with my team, you know, in the business trying to figure out how we're going to solve a particular challenge for an organization when it comes to their ability to, to have the influence or make the impact that they want to make. And suddenly all the people are gone. And if you're like me, you know, quite a collaborative being, then that's, that's really tricky. And that is something that I've struggled with this year, how to manage my state when the usual things that fill my cup do not, they're not there. And so for the first time I've started figuring out how to, um, have the same impact that I have, but digitally. And so it's, you know, taking what I teach and the content and the structures of what we do and turning them into a course, you know, rapid authority didn't exist. You know, I taught it for the first time, um, you know, a couple of months ago for the very first time. And you know what? It partially sucked. And, you know, they might not have thought it sucked. The feedback is yet to come in, but I thought it sucked. You know, it was not world-class. It was not at the level that I wanted it to be at because it was my first time. And some stuff worked and some stuff just didn't. And I really had to drink my own Kool-Aid. You know, I talk about it's always version eight. You know, we spend so long obsessing over version one. It is never version one. You just need to get through versions one to seven. Get them out there, learn fast. It will never be those things. It'll always be version eight. And I really had to drink my own Kool-Aid with that because I wanted to fiddle and perfect that thing. For, for I would have done it forever. You know, I did not want to put it out there because it was way outside of my comfort zone, because it was my first time, because, you know, a thousand different reasons that I could give you. Mm-hmm. So that was something that, that I had to do for the first time. And it really brought back to me that if this year has taught us anything, if this year has given us anything, it has made us detach, I think, from perfection. And yeah, and the great thing about this year too, alongside perfection is there's no real judgment as well. There's been that leniency, which I think is quite fascinating. Yeah, and that's what I mean. You know, we've, we've been given permission, right? to step back from perfection you know there was a group of lawyers i was working with and and they were saying to me you know we're doing all these zoom calls and you know they hold the partners in the law firm up as kind of these demigods and they were saying you know like the partners the some of their kids are busting into the room and you know i could see that they were you know that they were they weren't wearing their ties and their suits they were just like me and struggling with the tech just like me and you know, that is incredibly relieving to people. And I think that we have this, another myth, and this myth about perfection, that perfection is impressive. 
and perfection is connecting and perfection is what we want and actually the irony is that perfection is the opposite of what we want mm -hmm. you know there's a reason that we love reality tv there's a reason that social media makes an impact the impact that it does in our lives you know there is a reason why certain people we feel close to and that we allow to influence us talking about that permission piece Talk. and that reason is that they, they don't hide behind perfection yeah. there's no hiding they just again going back to certainty they give you the best that they've got with the tools and the knowledge that they have in the moment and it's not going to be perfect it's it's hopefully going to be passionate and it's hopefully going to be a reflection of their process yeah. and we would far rather see and witness somebody's process somebody's journey than we would witness their perfection and that's why traditional advertising is struggling so much now because traditional advertising by its very nature is perfect. It's highly produced, looks beautiful. It's using actors, words that have been polished to within an inch of their life. We don't want perfect anymore. We don't resonate with it. We don't buy, you know, as a result of it. We don't buy into it. We want you to show up with your process and your passion. And more importantly, having not let perfection stop you from showing up. So, yeah, I had to eat my own words for breakfast this year, <laughs> <laughs> which some days I did well and other days I resisted with all my might. So, you know, I'm no different to anybody else. This stuff is hard. There's, you know, there are a few people who have the courage to do it for a reason. And that is because it's hard. Perfecting the imperfections. Yeah. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, I have this obsession. It's a bit macabre. I have this obsession with understanding our bad choices. You know, and the, and all bad choices is a question of perspective. It's where you you sat in the conversation. But you know, Trump, for example. I have spent, I have interviewed so many Harvard professors. I have read so many books. I have studied so many things in an attempt to understand what that is. What happened in the words of Hillary Clinton and her book, <laughs> what happened? What happens? Um, I read an awful lot of books on the Holocaust. Um, you know, my husband thinks he doesn't think it's hilarious. He thinks it's kind of strange that I would spend our holiday over Christmas in Bali reading books about the Holocaust. But I want to understand, I need to understand what happened. Mm. I need to understand what influence looks like um, in those moments where it is used to such cataclysmic results. I need to understand how a group of individuals can be convinced of something so utterly that they would take action that they would never normally take. I need to decode that. You know, my whole life's work is about decoding that. I need to decode that and whatever the answers are, I need to teach it to people who have good intentions. Hmm. That's the whole, the whole reason for anything that I've ever done. Yeah, wow. So that's the questions that I can't answer and I'm trying desperately to answer. And who knows if I will ever, you know, I'm actually considering doing a, a PhD in movements. You know, what, what movements take hold? Why? How quickly? What stops them? 
And again, that is just another way of me attempting to answer that question. Mm, I like that last question. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Whatever makes you feel full. You know, I have friends who are stay-at-home mothers who live an extraordinary life because they are full of passion and joy and curiosity and excitement, not all day, every day, but you know what? The conversations I can have with them, I would struggle to have with anybody else about the, you know, the movements of the world, about politics, about um, crazy curious questions that we're asking about life in general. So whatever makes you feel full, mm. it, what, commit your life to whatever fills you up. I think that there's, don't commit your life to what makes you feel happy. That's such a transient thing. It's not gonna be true every day. And if it's not true every day, you're gonna feel like you're doing it wrong. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a beautiful article. I share it on LinkedIn every new year. I share the same article. And the essence of the article is forget what makes you happy. Commit to what you're willing to struggle for. Yeah. If you're willing to struggle for it, then it's, it's worthy. Because then you'll, you'll stick at it, right? And when it works, when it doesn't, when it's successful, when it's not, when you feel like it, when you don't. But if you just pay attention to what makes you happy... You know, that's, that comes and goes. It's not a, a reliable measure of an extraordinary life. Yeah. Julie, you've shared some incredible insights today. Um, I just love the way your thought patterns flow and the beautiful insights that you provide. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Probably the best way to connect with me, I would say, is um, via LinkedIn. So come on and, and say hi on LinkedIn. Um, I dabble with Instagram. I'm not a massive, which is interesting for somebody who studies influence and who teaches influence. I'm not particularly huge on social. Um, I think that social is a tool, but it is not the only tool. So I dabble around on Instagram if you want to check that out. Um, or if you, the podcast, actually the podcast, you know, if you my biggest contribution to the conversation is via the podcast. You know, a lot of work goes into it from me and my team to make sure that we go deep into some really interesting questions. And, you know, that's probably if you're looking to dive more into this topic, then check out the podcast. It's called Inside Influence Podcast. Um, and you can find it in all good places, Amazon, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, you name it. So yeah, I'd say check out the podcast, but say hello and tell me what's resonating because again, I'm always listening. So if there's something that resonates and that doesn't resonate, something you're curious about, you can't find an answer to it elsewhere, then I'd love to know that. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I just really enjoyed that your curiosity from when you were young to you know, to see what the world was like, to help people who influence the world and support them and, and ensure that their influence is not only been heard, but also seen and the action is taken um, by that person for the future. You've got some a beautiful understanding of gravity and that one really connects with me, the, the feeling of being grounded and, and holding that space and being able to kind of like take charge of what you believe in and ensure that you can deliver the best possible version of yourself uh, every single day. 
your three parts of the influence journey around fascinate me, uh, um, be a follower, and then be a fan. I really like the way that connects and your, your way of delving into something that most people would just go, okay, that's really interesting. You like to take it to a whole new level, you know, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be Duende, whether it be, um, you know, your, your, what you're looking at doing now from trying to understand things at a much deeper level. Uh, and I really appreciate what you're doing in the world and acknowledge you for the work that you've done to bring out some highly influential people around the world that are making a difference and creating change in people's lives. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you for thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation and for the opportunity to talk about some of these ideas because that's what that's what the world needs. It's more people standing up talking about ideas, including a diversity of opinions, changing their mind frequently, and um, and collaborating with other people. And that's exactly what you're doing with this podcast. So I I in turn acknowledge you for the for the work that you're doing putting this out. Thank you for listening to an incredible conversation with Julie Masters, how gravity shifts influence on the Active CEO podcast. Now, great leaders create great teams. Great teams empower great people. And great people become great leaders. It's so important that a leader focuses on the team first rather than the people. Because if you get the ingredients of the team right, then the team will empower the people with inside to raise to a whole new level. And if that team environment is doing its job that the leader has created, then those great people become great leaders. It's so important to remember that leaders create leaders. But in between, they must create a team that empowers people to then become great leaders. If you want to find out more about how you can design your organizational structure and leadership around creating great teams, that empower great people who become great leaders, then please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for listening to a beautiful conversation with Julie Masters. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.